Welcome to the Connected Commute podcast from Bolden Networks. Bolden Networks is unlocking the power of an interconnected future by bringing you insights in transport from around the globe. Today, Chris Bichette from Bolden Networks is talking to Pete Dyson. Pete is a leading behavioral scientist in the world of transport and travel behavior, previously authoring Transport for Humans alongside the wonderful Rory Sutherland. This proves the immense potential behind behavioral science and the impact it can have on the design of our roads, railways, planes, and pavements. Pete's mission is to embrace the messy reality of how we travel and learn from it to improve our futures. Hi folks, we're here today with Pete Dyson. Uh, Pete is a behavioral scientist, uh, presenter, a speaker, and well-known author of uh, Transport for Humans. Are we really there yet? book he co-wrote with uh, Rory Sutherland, who uh, we hope to see soon. Um, Pete, uh, I could go through your background here, but I think it's better if you describe uh, your background and history a little bit. Okay, nice. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, I would identify myself as a behavioral scientist. Uh, I do that because I spent uh, the majority of the start of my career working in uh, Ogilvy, an advertising and communications agency where uh, my co-author, Rory, set up uh, a dedicated team to look at um, behavior change, user experience, customer experience issues of all sorts across all sectors, working with lots of different brands, governments, lots of different challenges you could imagine. Um, We work closely together. um, We both share a passion for travel and transport. Rory had already written and spoken about lots of really interesting transport issues. So when the opportunity came up um, about five years ago or so now, jumped at the chance to um, write a book, in this case, Transport for Humans, um, that really builds out that whole argument, brings it to life, and hopefully gets some um, some impact and action. Uh, Since then, I've gone on to work at uh, the Department for Transport um, in the UK as a principal behavioral scientist. Um, and I'm now um, out at the University of Bath uh, where I'm doing some travel behavior research uh, as part of a PhD, uh, which has given me a bit of space to explore more topics and issues uh, uh, in, in a bit more depth. So, yeah, thanks for having me on. Let's not forget you're the bicycle mayor of Bath now, recently appointed. Oh, I was nearly, <laughs> nearly going to leave that one out. But, um, yeah, I uh, uh, a few months ago, uh, that position came available and uh yeah i applied for it and uh look forward to the next two years uh, for those unacquainted with bicycle mares it's uh socially organized by a a, a, a non-profit organization from uh, the netherlands uh, started about five years ago or so it's a charity that that run a whole network of uh, bicycle mares across cities around the world there are a very impressive i think 39 bicycle mares in indian uh, towns and cities um but there are, they're dotted all around the place. Uh, and it provides some sort of independent advocacy and challenge for um, active travel um, in people's communities. So not paid for a position, but uh, just volunteering and trying to do my bit and apply some principles that um, I speak about. Fantastic. So um, behavioral science, obviously your career is based around that. You're applying in the transit. Uh, tell us about behavioral science and, and, and why should people in transit care? Well, a good working definition of behavioral science is sort of the science of what people um, think, feel, and do. Um, So we're applying principles of psychology um, 
this isn't psychology in the domain of sort of clinical psychology. It's the general population applied psychology area. Uh, and people that are involved in transport should care because people are not cargo. Uh, people not being cargo is a really fundamental starting point in, in the book and in this argument. For too long, people have been treated as though they are cargo to be transported from A to B, um, that they are, say, inactive agents, uh, that they don't have that much decision about whether to travel, how to travel, what they feel when traveling doesn't matter too much, or at least if it does, don't worry, we've got you covered. We're just making it faster and cheaper. Um, but when you embrace the people are not cargo mentality, then you appreciate there are people who might not use your service. There are people who begrudgingly use your service and are denied some amount of dignity or, or positive experience. And if you want to run a really good service, it pays to understand your users uh, so you can make it better. The good news is, loads of ways in which you can make we can make uh, travel better for people uh, without having to put loads of shovels in the ground build loads of concrete and just have engineering solutions there are massive improvements to the way people can plan their journey uh, the way we can um, interact with them while they travel uh, and even after they travel uh, that we can make things better people are not homo transporticus that's right, yeah. So uh, to build on the people are not cargo, we can add another layer to it that uh, we argue that when people uh, design transport systems, they're inclined to uh, design for the brains and the behaviors they wish people had. We characterize that invention of a, of a type of person that knows everything. They know all your tickets. They know all your routes. They're never going to get lost. They know what they're doing. We characterize that fictional character as homo transporticus so another type of being or another type of species um whereas of course we are homo sapiens being homo sapiens means we have an evolved history where we readily accept that our bodies have some some strengths and some shortcomings and some weaknesses and in this modern world maybe we wish we were even more mobile than we are we wish we were all stronger and faster and fitter we often accept that people have variety there um, but only recently, thanks to psychology, do we know that Homo sapiens, us, have an evolved mind. And we're inclined to make shortcuts, make approximations when we don't know what we're doing. We'll turn to uh, to social influence and see what other people are doing. Uh, we readily get scared or anxious or concerned, and then a set of behaviors might uh, flow from that. Uh, so we're trying to leverage all the um, actual acceptance of who we are build from that basis. I, I equate a lot of the things that I see and hear in life to poker. There's a lot of analogies that draw squarely to a poker game. And in transit, humans don't act rationally sometimes. One of the one of the, of all the factors you've mentioned, one of them is sometimes we're just not rational. And that doesn't equate into an accountant's view of the averages and the and the the expected behavior that everybody should follow. So yeah, the point you're making is the averages, the, the math calculations are inaccurate because, because we're people, not a model. And I think in the absence of knowing anything about your users, it's not wildly wrong to think that they will be rational. It's a model of thinking that people will try and take a slightly cheaper or shorter route. Uh, they'll behave what we might call reasonably. Um, it would be better to 
uh, survey and understand your actual users and then update your thinking accordingly and go, actually, some subset of people seem to be very concerned by this thing we hadn't thought was so important after all. The trouble is it's become um, what we'll say is like a crutch to lean on and it's become entirely defensible to just assume people will be rational, we'll plan everything accordingly um, and you know I'm not going to lose my job as a result of it because, hey, it was fair to assume people are rational. I think there's now a wealth of evidence to show that that assumption should be challenged and it shouldn't be acceptable to um, sign off on bigger projects uh, just on the basis of assuming people will be uh, rational beings. Not least because, um, especially in the transport setting, more than most other sectors, you can't hope to be rational the first time you use a service because you just don't possibly know enough. Uh, you don't know where the thing's going. You don't know what you're doing. Uh, you get off at the wrong stop. You get a bit lost. You need an extra bit of signage. Um, maybe the first time you do it, it's not rational to spend that amount of money, uh, but you're making an investment that if this pays off and is a useful bit of transport tech, whether that be um, you know, a new bus service, buying an e-bike, trying out an electric car, you're willing to take a punt on it, and if it pays off, hey, that's great. So people can't hope to be uh, rational, even if they generally uh, wanted to be. The other extra element to it is in the transport setting, and I get really excited and really interested by this, the whole concept of rationality doesn't make a whole lot of sense. When you're dealing with finance and you're just dealing with a pension or a savings product, you can really go to town with rationality because it's kind of obvious what you're optimizing for. It's got, you've got some money to invest. How's it going to perform? You know, it'd be better to have more money than have less money. When you come into travel and transport, it's a much more qualitative experience where who's to say it's better to arrive five minutes earlier, but you have to stand for the whole journey? Or who's to say it's better uh, to arrive 10 minutes sooner, um, but you were really hot in the process? You're really out of breath when you arrived and completely discombobulated. Uh, so what we're optimizing for is really a someone's personal preference so we can't always say that people are biased towards the wrong thing it might be totally reasonable to take the long route to have a seat to have a seat to be able to make a private phone conversation to have a table there are loads of really clear cases where someone's optimizing for something that it's not really clear to the um the person up on high uh what they're trying to achieve so the better we can understand the diversity of people's preferences uh, the more we can design better systems and we might get into this but the more then people will spread out and they won't all flock to the same one choice because if there's one problem in transport it's when everyone chooses the same we all get in gridlock <laughs> I, I think that's very uh, uh you know underscored in the book uh you, you make an example of uh if we had six billion dollars to spend on a transit project to make the transit the, the journey 10 minutes faster wouldn't it be better if we just paid supermodels to hand out drinks along the journey and have another $5 billion left over to do other things? And uh, people would want a longer journey. And and uh, it it uh, it ties to you what you mentioned about we tend to derive engineering solutions. We, we look at engineering solutions for all of our transit woes by default. But it wasn't always that way. In the early days of, of trains and so on, everything was engineering driven because 
we were inventing something. And then in the 1900s, that changed a bit. And then we lost our way somewhere mid-century. Can you, can you explain how that, any ideas how that came about, how our thinking evolved? And, and, and I think your effort and our effort is to try and bring us back somewhere in the middle there, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think the narrative we hold, and I think it, it, uh, happy to be challenged on it, but I think it's a, it's a useful story to be told that the Victorians in the UK had a, seems like a pretty clear sense of what they were trying to achieve, both in improving a passenger customer experience with their development of underground railways, above ground railways, uh, the bus system, partly because they were competing with other historic modes of transport. It looked like they were trying to improve things for customers, passengers, and also looked like they were pretty savvy in terms of understanding that what transport does is not just cut journey times down, but unlocks people's ability to access land, to access other communities, to build whole commuter suburbs and other places to live. And it looks like they really had that down. You then wind forwards, and this is a slightly UK story, but I think is true in, in more parts of the world. Um, in the mid-20th century, you then get a, a lot more uh, science, in inverted commas, applied to business. And this is true of other businesses that started to um, really hone their bureaucracies and start measuring metrics and start um, really pressing on with um, a, a, a clearer economic analysis to things. Now, it was well-meaning, but a lot of these things then rested on... Um, cutting travel time down um the book we tell the story of the victoria line of an impressive uh, underground line in the uk that was built in the end of the 1950s and to justify that big investment it really hinged on the premise that you'll be able to get um, mostly commuters and business people across the city faster um, and then you run the numbers and you show how a faster journey will save the businessman time and you add up all the time savings and you say this is why it's worth investing millions of pounds in this new railway. That serves you to some extent, but it then means that you view all of his transport journey through the lens of time to be destroyed rather than journey time to be improved. Because if you acknowledge that people's time spent traveling was useful or meaningful in some sort of way, you're sort of destroying the argument that you premised the, um, the um, infrastructure on. Now, I think when we go through time we'll see actually the victoria line was a brilliant investment not because it cut journey times down necessarily but it unlocked whole neighborhoods that people could live in um and they started moving out from the middle of london to these communities uh, like brixton or walthamstow areas of the sort of semi suburbs at the time um of london um so we can see that actually our premise is that um we hope to come with a sort of yes and uh, mentality. Yes, invest in engineering and infrastructure, but also do other things, and they're not in competition. And we wind forward to the present day, the UK's wrestling with a um, high-speed rail line proposal to connect its major cities together, and that's, again, a story you've got in the, in the US and the, in the West Coast, and uh, you have a high-speed rail line in the, in the East Coast. Now, the problem we're wrestling with at the moment is that um, we're still stuck in the time savings model and when people start running the numbers they're struggling to make the case to say well we're going to cut the journey from sort of this amount of time by about 20 minutes 
to be honest, that amount of time doesn't really warrant this, that, or the other. But when you look at the actual case to be made, it's all about getting way more people to be able to travel because you've got a dedicated line. Really important mode shift so that people don't have to use um, carbon-intensive forms of um, uh, transport. And most importantly, just connecting up um, places that could could really do with connecting more for lots of cultural and economic reasons. You've touched on a, a number of things. Well, one, I'm sure we'll get back to the engineering versus uh, behavioral science uh, throughout. But uh, where did it all begin for you? What was the what was the transit thing that irritated you so much? You decided to get into this field and give the industry a shake. Yeah. Um... Ticket vending machines, I think. Yeah, for me, ticket vending machines. Um, other listeners may have other um, gripes or frustrations. And I'm okay with it sort of starting with a level of frustration, but um, it struck me, I don't know, as a teenager, just bizarre that um, I could tell that hundreds of people would use my local rail station, and you just wonder why are there only two paper ticket vending machines and on a Monday morning there'll be all these commuters queuing up and you go if you can make a train travel over 100 miles an hour flying through a city why can't we just dispense tickets a little bit more easily and quicker uh, it just seemed totally bizarre really that no one was that it had been like that and it didn't seem like it was changing uh, so i wanted to dig into why and try and try and help and here we are and, and somebody's standing there taking 10 minutes because they can't understand the pricing scheme and they're trying to figure out what it costs to go from here to there. And now, now on TFL, you tap, you tap on, you tap off, they figure out the fare afterwards. I, I'd call that a victory. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And um, the trouble is sometimes these things that don't cost that much to implement don't also come with a parallel sort of investment in their evaluation. So there probably is good evaluation of investing in a new railway and there should be and you should start measuring oh what journeys did we create how are people traveling differently but you do something as simple as adding relatively simple as adding uh, contactless ticketing but it doesn't come with a uh, a parallel sort of investment and go who's doing this how are they doing it how is it changing their their the the way they travel i think the same story can be told for um in mobile connectivity um and wi-fi and station platforms and on trains that we put it in, but we don't really understand how much people are now depending on it, relying on it, uh, what they're doing, what 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 helpful, meaningful things they're doing with it. Uh, I wish that were to change. In the UK, we've also got a scheme. This is jumping away from public transport, but to give it balance. Um, with electric vehicles, the UK is the only country, to my knowledge, moment, to have the number plates. You have a little green uh, rectangle to signify that it's an electric vehicle. Um, it came in for a number of reasons. One, to sort of, uh, to, in the hope that, or in the possibility that there might be specific regulations of what, where EVs can park and what they can do, and it would be helpful to identify that it's electric. As a behavioral scientist, I get really excited by the fact that an electric vehicle might be very clearly signified and I'd be worried if they didn't and, and people weren't able to see just how many more electric cars that were coming into their neighborhood. So what it is is a green uh, green rectangle on the number plate. You you are free to opt out of it and a fraction of people decide to. Maybe they don't like the color or what have you. They're free to do that. But currently there is zero evaluation of what difference that has made to 
the adoption of electric vehicles. Whereas you can be sure that invest, say, the um, uh, a grant for uh, uh, people to buy an electric vehicle will be fully evaluated and will get a really clear cost benefit analysis of that whole thing. Um, I just wish a bit more attention were paid to the psychological interventions we are already putting in because ultimately it's through those successes and through learnings that um, we'll be able to make better cases for those um, those opportunities in other domains. Yeah, you mentioned uh, a number of features that have been added to make a better, ultimately make a better passenger experience. I suspect some of them were responses to perhaps overwhelming passenger demand. Um, but you also mentioned that a lot of these things are common sense. And you, 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 in fact, in the book, you refer to behavioral science. If that sounds like common sense, well, that's kind of the point. Why is it so hard to come by this common sense in transit? It, 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 to me, it seems like a, a rare thing. And it seems like if we're going to change it, it's going to be generations over generations. It's not something we can change overnight. Don't change overnight, but um, yeah, I'm pleased you took you picked up on that quote. Yeah, if it sounds like the science of common sense, as people shrug their shoulders and say, you know, it's not engineering. Basically, you're just talking common sense, are you? And I say, yes, common sense is really hard to understand. <laughs> exactly. Um, Why is it so rare? I mean, Newtonian physics is really hard to understand, <laughs> but I could simplify it and say, well, stuff falls downwards doesn't it and all you're doing is <laughs> is working from that premise um yeah common sense is difficult it's difficult partly because not ever because of the uh differences between people and um so one person's common sense is another person's um bizarre choice um that's why i think another working definition of behavioral science is like people choose what makes sense to them at that moment in time um and makes sense to them is a useful way of looking at it um, but in, with respect to um, how much we might change, uh, I think it's a sort of sector sectoral thing, and by that I mean the transport sector. Um, we quip has been is is at risk of being left behind. Uh, there are other sectors that have embraced uh, customer centricity really, really rapidly, kind of because they had to. Um, you don't really see hotels just talk about themselves as like the most efficient allocation of beds or restaurants being the most efficient allocation of calories to people. Whereas we are inclined somehow to uh, to reduce transport down to the efficient transportation of people from A to B. Whereas I just feel like it's abundantly clear that in other sectors, that method of thinking is a bit of a dead end. Sometimes people try it and they test it out. Uh, and you'll get a budget operator of some sort. Uh, but typically they come back to something that's much more about experience. Um, and in a world where people can more and more um, choose with their discretion whether to travel or not, they have other ways of achieving their ends. They can stay local, they can connect digitally, they can get the thing posted. They've got other things that they don't have to always, always travel themselves. Um, we should be aware that transport competing with other sectors that already are further along on a, on a customer-centric journey. So in a way, the, the the quickest or generational thing to change is for people to, to look at what transport are doing, maybe see the opportunities, but also see that there's a career involved in making things better for people. And we can hire more user experience people. We can get, God, imagine the amount of billions of dollars spent in, um, say, the 
iPhone operating system and the amount of thousands of pennies spent on the ticket vending machine operating system. They're chalk and cheese, but I'm inspired. And I think it's brilliant that as they, um, especially with public transport, you could ride on a 20 billion pound bet of infrastructure for £1.50. And I just think that's kind of incredible that we can experience amazing uh, propulsive systems and technologies for very little cost to the user. Um, I think that's kind of cool, but you know, doesn't mean that we should be treated uh, like cargo. We should have our, uh, we should be treated the fullness of our experience. I'm that guy too. I'm that guy. I've been on hundreds of flights, but every once in a while, I still look out the window and go, "Oh my God, I'm sitting in a chair in the sky." I love that we can partake in this. Uh, but but you you mentioned a, a couple times there earlier. You bemoaned the the lack of measurement of some of these things that have been implemented. To, to better, allegedly better the passenger experience, but we don't really know because we don't measure them well. But is that perhaps the gap, the difficulty? Because if we're trying to make the, the trip 10 minutes longer, we can measure that quite objectively. If we're trying to uh, measure perceptions, is that a bridge too far for many of the people who have traditionally worked in transit, who are of an engineering background, who just simply don't think that way, perhaps. Yeah, and I mean, I think the the riddle sort of goes that precisely the thing that can make behavioral science from the outside seem frustrating uh, is precisely the, the strength that we're advocating. So it's frustrating because uh, it doesn't seem, people don't seem to be following predetermined set of rules, but that is the benefit that you can strike upon some uh, solutions um, that don't, not every solution you come up with will work, but um, sometimes you will hit upon one that does seem rather magical. Um, and there's a good case to be made for lots of people trying lots of different things. Um, that can be difficult in a regional or national setting where you need a coherent, um, consistent set of guidelines for people to cooperate and people to work well, as in a city that decides to just have completely different road signs and just try out some different colors and see if they work or not is not going to work well because many people will arrive in that city and be totally uh, befuddled. Um, but with when it comes to measurement, there are ways in which there are tools available that I just don't think the transport sector has fully embraced yet as part of its uh, toolkit. So one of them would be um, tools from social science to appraise um, qualitative uh, experiences. Um, an economist would be using discrete choice experiments. A lot of academics publish discrete choice experiments. Uh, they do conjoint analysis. They get pounds of people to uh, randomize them into different groups and see how they react to different things. Um, they do uh uh, evaluations like uh, in in field, whether that's ethnography, observational studies, instrumented studies, where you start measuring people's uh, reactions to things, I think is actually quite strong in an academic setting. It just hasn't really been put into practice and been commonplace. So, by way of example, in the uh, Cambridge region in in the UK, uh, there was a proposal to have a uh, effectively a congestion charge, so a five pound charge for driving into the city centre. Now. They never, to my knowledge, they didn't evaluate that price with people. They approximated five pounds seemed about right, but they didn't 
get a panel of a couple of thousand people, randomly assign them to groups, see how they would react to two pounds, three pounds, four pounds, five pounds, six pounds. Uh, and I think I think if they had done, they would have found that five pounds was a bit of a above a breaking point of what was tolerable to people to drive into the city. And they might have had more success having a lower figure that gained enough public acceptance so that they could then um, be put through. Because in reality, last week, the screen was scrapped because um, people didn't didn't want it to happen. Um, so that can help you hone um, the proposition. Uh, and then again, some of them are hard to work out. Um, I think people have been often really excited about quantifying journey time and wait time. Um, and it leads you to sort of find that people really dislike the wait time aspect of a trip. So one minute waiting might be worth three minutes of transit time. That's a really good rule of thumb. And that was part of the whole valuing travel time savings bit. It just never quite led to the clear business case for having that real time information, um, which we as users so obviously find helpful to see that something's coming in five minutes time um, and to have that countdown display um, shown to us. I think it just required someone getting on the phone or emailing a psychologist to start evaluating how much did that ticket display board matter and could we design a trial to evaluate uh, the difference. Do we need to put put it up for a few weeks and take and actually invest in taking it down and seeing what happens or a natural experiment where we compare different um, regions, one of which gets it and the other which doesn't, um, that sort of thing. Um, that effort hasn't unfortunately been put in place uh, but it could do um, and that would help uh, answer the uh, the questions that policymakers are wrestling with often to say well our government's just unlocked some millions of dollars or pounds of funding to improve the bus system are we go how should we allocate that to bus priority lanes to having more buses to uh, uh, improving bus driver pay how much would you invest in bus shelters and in that real-time information um, Someone has to make a decision somewhere along the way of how to allocate that funding. Um, but at the moment, they're not really armed with the evidence. So I think they need to make a, a really good call. And and sometimes it takes from the policymakers some bravery. Some if if the Cambridge decision went to a vote or it was a mass unpopular decision, other cities might just push that through for the betterment and get past that hurdle. And I guess. Uh, I guess the problem is you may not get elected again. You may do the right thing, but you may not get elected again. So, um, so, so what you described, um, I think, the 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 translation of which comes out to me in the book about the Cano theory. It requires much more effort to to change performance than perception. And and I maybe if we spread that word around a little bit more. Um, maybe, um, I don't know, you're, you're an academic. Perhaps the lessons learned from an academic are, uh, are instinctively rejected by some people in the transit industry. I, I don't know. We're, we're living in a weird time. So uh, I don't know how we, we change those perceptions. I think it's just a a withering process where over time we just erode and and uh, finally get through to people, but uh, yeah, it's it's frustrating. But just going back to the the perception versus performance theory, you cited an example of of the 
the amazing reception a champagne bar got in what was it St Pancras station yes yeah, so St Pancras international uh, St Pancras station in London an iconic station a real uh, a real masterpiece really of architecture certainly from the outside uh for the Victorian era uh had investment to be revamped as part of it being the new hub for um, the Eurostart connector France uh, and in so doing, I think they took an interesting and bold and good decision to make a sort of flagship piece. So you've got all the architecture that's very pronounced, but they also have the longest champagne bar in Europe or in the world. They can make this claim that for it sounds very opulent. Ultimately, it's just a long <laughs> pub bar uh, where champagne is served. But it adds a bit of glitz and glamour, and that's sort of what the rail industry has sometimes done. A really neat job of understanding um, some parts of those rail operators really get it and they know what they're offering uh, and they do a great job of it. Um, you also have in uh, Marlebon Station, not far away, um, a fantastic um, fromagerie or ch- uh, ch- cheesemongers um, that sort of, in a way, draws people's eye to the uh, to the station design. Um, I can also provide a reason for going there, a unique experience you wouldn't otherwise get. Um, I think Rory, in particular, maligns the way in which stations can become very homogenous. And in a way, you want to rely on the fact there's a news agent, um, but there's a retailer called Oliver Bonus, sort of sells homeware and some luxury goods, which really despises the way it's sort of so generic in its offering. Uh, that not every station should have the same thing. There should be a little bit of variation um, between them. And if they ever want to become destinations, then they're going to have to offer some uh, some novel thing, like being a, a florist, for instance. Um, it's something you, not every station would need to have a florist, but you can see how um, it would be good if some did. This podcast is brought to you by Bolden Networks. Unlocking the power of an interconnected future. We're delivering the advanced shared network infrastructures needed for a smart, inclusive, and sustainable future. From interconnected transit to venues, enterprises to smart cities, we're creating new possibilities in the way people live, work, and play. Find out more, visit boldin.com. We've done a lot of work in stations recently. We've just published a white paper on our observations in the stations and how how to make stations better. Your your point about uh, the champagne bar, that affects people's perception of their trip, especially if they're if they're first time first time riders on the on the system and they see a champagne bar, that can impact their whole perception of how their trip went. And we feel that. Um, the, the attention to stations is very underserved in a lot of places. Some places have majestic stations where they take pride and others are completely ignored. Um, you've, you've got all kinds of examples in the book. What, what are the, what are the unachieved things that are on your mind that can make a station better and, and improve the perception of a, of a transit journey? Um, I think top of the list. I was going to say too long to list. <laughs> it's a long list. Top of the list, um, seating and tables. It seems bizarre that the train is, for me, so clearly has an advantage over 
other modes of transport in being the thing that you can sit down and most of the time have a table. Now, a laptop is something we've recently invented and is really good. By no means is everyone going to use a laptop, but a table is really good for putting a, a drink on and then having both hands free uh, to then use to read a book or to have paper out or to tables that have lots and lots of great uses. I mean, in our homes, we've got kitchen tables, desks, so on and so forth. Um, and yet when you come to the station environment, it's as though that insight that people like to sit down and use a table is actively designed out. There are no, so few horizontal services uh, for somewhere that you know hundreds of people are moving through. They design out any benches, um, seem to be sort of places that are kicked out, partly for, I think, very um, um, disingenuous reasons that people, uh, it's a public space and people, would, uh, people, the world customers of the rail system will come and use it and overuse it. I think that that's um, a little bit pessimistic myself uh, and there would be other solutions to help fix that. Um, so I bring in a lot more seating and a lot more table surfaces um, and I wouldn't provide them only in the retail environment. And I think we've touched on this, but not said it yet, that unfortunately the people that manage rail stations are often, they set up a model where they're remunerated, their business model becomes get people to spend money at the um, in the retail environment. And then some pretty bizarre things end up happening that they... Um, don't want people to board the train earlier because that will lose them retail concessions. And you go, what world are we living in where we're like trying to prop up businesses here? That makes absolutely no sense to me whatsoever. Um, or for instance, that if you provided ample seating, uh, well, you didn't have to be a customer of a coffee coffee shop or a restaurant, well, that would undermine retail sales. You go, yeah, but you would massively improve the experience for people. And isn't that the whole point here? Um, the other would be improving ticketing. Um, and we're moving away from, uh, printed, uh, printed tickets and the need to either collect or to purchase your ticket, uh, at the station. Um, but not entirely. And, uh, in the UK, there's a lot at the moment, um, much discussion around the closure of ticket offices. Um, so ma a man or a, a ticket office with a person behind a, a screen. Uh, there's a long way to go there. I'm sympathetic to it. I think it'd be a, there are big losses to cut. Um, but no one's really stepping back and asking the broader question. Uh, they're saying they're coming at it from a question of how do we make cost cost savings. I would say how do we come at it from the how do we make it easier to travel on the rail network. I think we that would arrive at some slightly different, more obvious solutions like. Um, having a video screen and video connection uh, to, to initially replace the, some of the uh, in-person services uh, that would be actually be better. They would be better because uh, you could be uh, connected to somebody who can still operate the ticket machine and print you something out and print you guidance and do all of those things. You could improve the audio and visual experience much better than the current one, which is sort of muffled and quite distant sort of uh, experience. So you can make it a lot, lot better and you can actually start introducing those to places that never had a ticket that, you know, many stations don't have a, a, a manned office at all. Um, so there's more that could be done um, on tickets. 
Uh, we could go on and on, <laughs> on and on, but I'd be keen to hear your reflections because you have written a, written a white paper so recently. You, you just mentioned speakers. I was just on the subway in Toronto last night and there was a service issue and they had a half a dozen different announcements and I couldn't understand any one of them. <laughs> I, I don't know how we put a man on the moon and we still can't send an announcement to passengers to, to keep them online. Uh, my, my pet peeve would be uh, wayfinding. I, I think I think Houston Station has been in operation for 180 years now, and we still can't find a way to navigate people conveniently and easily through the large stations. In Paddington, if you're coming to our office and you take a wrong turn, it can cost you 10 minutes to walk around the building, an extra 10 minutes or 15 minutes because you took the wrong exit. And uh, that kind of thing just uh, really gets under my skin. And, and you know, some... Some of these things don't require a technical solution. Some, some good signage can solve some of these issues, but then construction goes up and this path is closed and signage changes and it doesn't get updated. But technology can also do that, but you're using Google Maps and it doesn't work. Your GPS doesn't work indoors, so it, you're, you're cut loose. Um, but uh, a good wayfinding solution, there are a number of them out there, but... Nobody has nailed it. Nobody's got the killer app that every station wants to adopt. Yeah, and I think I think when you arrive at rail stations, you can when you pick it apart and look at it like a sociologist would. I think you can quickly see how your identity shifts to becoming self-loading freight. Um, you are interacting with a system that is designed for the benefit of the train leaving the station. So, for an example platform names are named by the by the sort of uh, uh, platform control uh, operators often with names that could make no sense to the user they're often numbered one two three four and so on but you get the addition of 10a and 10b where the 10b refers to an entirely just a what any user would go so that's just a different platform in fact that's an exceptional platform because it's you know on the other side of the uh under a tunnel or what have you. And yet they associate them as 10A and 10B in a way that the user would obviously not understand uh, what's going on there. Um, but then you get other elements of the um, uh, point where you get uh, the uh, way in which people have to... Sorry, you get um, announcements that say uh, ticket door. the ticket doors will close 30 seconds before departure or two, the ticket doors will close two minutes before departure. And something we put at the start of the book because it shows the sort of way in which it's not optimized for the user, but for the train to leave. And we want trains to leave on time, but to our mind, to Rory and I's mind, if the train door has closed and you can neither get on nor get off the train, the fact that the train is stationary for that first period of time is immaterial. It is effectively uh, departed. The journey has started at yeah. the point in which you cannot get on or get off the train. It's going to stop along the way, so uh, you know, it stops there. Um, at other points, we don't say that uh, that's not part of the journey. Um, so there needs to be a cleverer way, really, to get people to board than simply cruelly sort of publish a departure time and then say, "Oh, actually, the door shut two minutes before departure," which is quite a lot of time before departure. And it's a shame because you stand at a railway station, you see pretty much every train carrying a few hundred people. There'll be one, two, sometimes a dozen people that are rushing for that train. 
And then there's another handful of people who do miss it entirely because of their, the way in which they've had to travel to the station. And we can get into the way in which that's the, um, the real golden territory, territory for stations to explore. There are other solutions. So if you look over to the US, Grand Central Station in New York does actually give people a grace period and the train door, the train will actually depart a minute after its published departure time. Uh, and I think that's really rather clever. Um, obviously then the published sort of length of that journey gets a little bit longer, but I'd rather live in a world that was more realistic like that than, um, than the other one where they're squabbling over, um, a few minutes, um, uh, here or there. You just reminded me of a trip in Montreal where I rushed from work and got to the station and wanted to get a snack on my ride. And I said, do I have any time? And they, and the, the guy at the door just said, look at that clock. The train left at say five o'clock. If it says 4.59 when you're back here, I will guarantee you, you get on the train. <laughs> so I, I, I like that approach. Um, but uh, one of the, just coming back to the stations and, and uh, my pet peeves, uh, one of the underserved populations in transit, I think, are, and you alluded to it earlier, the first-time users. The first-time users or the tourists, the visitors, are, in my estimation, completely underserved in stations because if it's your first time you don't know how to navigate through the station you don't know how to buy a ticket you don't know how to get out or make your transfer to the subway and we don't really help those populations very much i i want to revolutionize the wi-fi service so somebody who connects gets help immediate help they can click and in 15 different languages they can find out how to get around the station what, uh, what other uh, technologies have you seen, have you observed in stations that have made a, a great benefit like that or, or that you'd like to see that we're not serving yet? Yeah, well, first I agree with you about the tension between new and regular users. Um, I do acknowledge that if you optimized for new users and assumed ever, this was o every day was opening day for the station, there would be a heck of a lot to explain uh, and there would be Tano announcements going off everywhere, and we we couldn't couldn't frankly deal with it. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, and and I'm not looking I'm not looking to annoy the regulars. I'm looking to give some tools yeah, yeah. for the people who don't do, yeah, do that path five times a week. Whereas I agree, and whereas we live in a world where that's maybe they're so concerned about that level of uh, information that. They seem to have jettisoned it entirely, and there's really very little information to new people. Digital technology, as you point out, means that there's so many ways in which you could customize um, and differentiate between users. At the um, Rail Passenger Conference uh, we were both at in um, Amsterdam last November, I was really struck by the um, in, in, the innovation uh, for uh, partially sighted users or blind users where... Um, this company have gone across major rail stations with a 360 degree camera. They've mapped it all out and they know where all the platforms are and all the concourses. And then the uh, user can hold up their phone and use their phone cameras, you know, set of eyes as it were. And then it gives all audible um, uh, descriptions of where to go. So you would say uh, you might integrate it into your uh, ticket planning thing or it would know you get to platform four and then it walks you there. Uh, I think that's, really really cool and really amazing use of um technology to sort of give the benefits of sight to to more people 
it probably actually has applications uh, for people with fully functioning eyes. Um, uh, and I'd be inclined to use it if I went somewhere new. I think the extra element that we miss out is as well for new users that they are often going to want to plan their journey and they're going to want information about it before they arrive. It's not okay to just assume it'll kind of work out uh, when I'm there. Um, often you're a new user when you're taking a special trip. You know the feature of a special trip. There's something on the line. It's stressful. You want to, It wants to be punctual. You don't want it to go wrong. So something like a trip to a new airport would be one. And it's a shame that people rely so heavily on taxis often for those but actually there's a great public transport network uh, that you could do. So I'd want to be able to see, just as I would do for other services and experiences online before I go, a little walkthrough. And there's resources online that people are using at the moment, like um, the man in seat 61, the travel nerd or geek, who's so helpful for um, doing common trips, like uh, in Europe, interchanging in Paris between the Eurostar and then all the services that uh, that go uh, to other parts of France. Uh, it will document all your options with pictures. Here's where you walk. This is a, the, the escalator you go down. Use these ticket machines, not those ticket machines. All helpful things that people will invest. I'm confident they'd invest five or ten minutes just to check the journey sometimes beforehand. Then then basically have to apply that level of buffer anyway because they haven't been provided with proper information so they just have to guess or just hope that they go well i better leave an extra 10 minutes to change because i don't actually no one's helped told me what's going on i think there's also a case to be made that that information just as the partially sighted people the, the innovation for partially sighted people helps generally new, new users uh, the general audience as well that information that would be extremely helpful to the neurodiverse uh uh uh, passenger would be helpful to the general population because you see in other domains uh, a new uh, swimming pool opened in the city i'm in in bath recently and they have on their web page specific uh, pictures and videos for people uh with uh with asd with all uh, the autistic spectrum so that they can see this is the this is the platform you're going to walk down and this is what the changing rooms look like and this is where you'll be getting a ticket, and this is what the car park looks like. Um, all things that basically really massively help make that uh, journey possible for um, people with ASD are also ge of general interest to all people, or general, you know, a wider audience. Um, so lots more that could be done there. Um, and clearly, good that lots of services we experience now in the 2020s are like that. But I still think that in a couple of decades' time, we will look at the 2020s and go, wow, there was still loads of stuff we didn't do. And now it would be like blindingly obvious and it would just be cruel to, to not do it. So the quicker we can accelerate that on, uh, the better. Common sense kind of things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, common sense from, from real close user insight. And to be sympathetic to designers, I haven't worked in a career where I spend 10 years of my life looking at just one project and it goes through dozens of different iterations and it's a struggle to get the foundations in the ground and you work from blueprints and printed paper and then you bring this thing to life and it's a whole vast ticket uh, train station, what have you, a bus station or road network. I haven't done that and I am sympathetic to the fact that they sort of design it with a vision in mind, but then when... When you come to use it, 
you do hope that they then do a walkthrough and don't just admire the fact that they built it and the concrete looks amazing, that they actually walk through it and go, hang on a minute, that sign doesn't quite make a sense or it kind of points there. Or you know what we could do? We could do with a, now built it, we could do with a few bits and bobs here, um, a bench here or there, or we could move this. It feels like you spend billions of pounds fitting the whole thing out and then you just go, ta-da, it's kind of open. Uh, and then that's the point, that's when they're most resistant to any change. So, for instance, London Bridge Station got a huge um, revamp um, a few years ago, and it's not been an iterative any, in any way. It's just opened. People saw that it was drafty, cold, a bit confusing, with no benches, not clear where the toilets are, uh, and absolutely none of that's been addressed. And I, I don't exactly understand why you would invest that much money up front and not change it um, as you go along. I think we do that ourselves with our homes or businesses do that and they adapt over time and they refit and they tweak it a little bit here and there yeah well uh pete i i i could literally talk with you for hours i'm i'm a true fanboy and a disciple of transport for humans uh but uh we're out of time so i i i openly invite you to come speak with us anytime I want to go to Bath and just hang outside your office and catch you at the coffee shop or something. And but uh, actually, uh, we'll, we'll, let's leave with this: um, you live in Bath. I just came from Peter Gabriel concert. Have you made it up Salisbury Hill yet? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I uh, have a friend who's a big Peter Gabriel fan and big Genesis fan. I went, I went to Bath. I took a picture of it. I brought it home. I showed him the picture. He went, oh, Salisbury Hill. I don't know how you could pick that out of a nondescript hill, but he's a super fan. Anyway, uh, thanks so much for your time, Pete. We'll, we'll, uh, I'm sure we'll cross paths many times in the near future. Yeah, thanks so much for the interview. And I mean, it speaks volumes that you've, whatever you've got out of me, it's because I can feel that you've uh, studied this yourself. And uh, yeah, great questions. Cheers. Appreciate it. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Connected Commute podcast from Bolden Networks. Follow or subscribe on the platform of your choice to stay connected and keep up to date with the latest innovations at bolden.com.